time we meet together that God would show us something through his word, through his Holy Spirit. And as we meet together, God would bind us together and mold us and shape us, give us the ears to hear, such as what we read about in the letter of John the baptizer, the revelation of Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, that the Spirit would illumine and, and show us and that we might hear what the Spirit says to the church this day. God has gifted us with another day to glorify His name in corporate worship together. In fact, the Lord has gifted His people with a number of different things, and, and all the things that God has gifted His church with are to be used and utilized in the ultimate goal, and that is to glorify God in all that we do. He has given His most precious gift, and that He has given His only begotten, unique Son, Jesus Christ, to die a cruel death on a Roman instrument of suffering and shame, the cross, and then to rise again, defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he has gifted the gift of salvation through Jesus, which is an act or an exchange. My filthy rags for his imputed righteousness. We can never earn, and this can never be fulfilled on our own. The Lord has gifted us with the gift of the church, the body, the assembly, a place where God assembles His people together to glorify the risen Christ and to commune together with one another. The church is a gift to God's people because we have the privilege of meeting together, worshiping together, serving together, evangelizing together. And in this day, in this hour that we are in right now, if I was a betting man, I bet that if you were to take one sheet of paper, and if you were to write on the front and the back all the things that God has gifted you with, you would not have enough room on the front and back of that piece of paper to, to adequately reflect all the things that God has blessed you with. And at the top of the heading of that would be the Son of God, Jesus, who died for my sins. But there is one gift that I did not mention, and that is the gift that we're going to speak of today in the topic and title of this sermon. Because this gift is more than a gift. Because he is the third person in the triune Godhead. Namely, the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is not an it. We don't refer to God, the Holy Spirit, as an it. He is not some ethereal force out in the great blue yonder. He is God, and God is worthy of worship and praise and adoration and honor. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a he, and is worthy of our worship. And even though we are secure in Jesus Christ as followers of Christ, 
And even though we have been redeemed, and even though we have been placed in, the, in, the, in Jesus' hands never to escape, it should make you tremble with fear at the very thought of God, the Holy Spirit, abandoning us in our time of need and in our time of suffering. David called upon the Lord in Psalm 51, verse 11, when his sin crushed David. David was crushed under the weight of his sin. And he cried out to the Lord. He said, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And I would suspect it is not so much that the Holy Spirit has abandoned us in our time of need. It is that we have abandoned communion with the sweet Holy Spirit. In fact, Ephesians 4 and verse 30 says, And do not grieve or bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And as sweet a gift of the Holy Spirit is to us, the question remains is why do we neglect the teaching of the Holy Spirit so much in communion with Him? Are we afraid that we might get a little too close to our charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ? Or we might get a little bit too close to those who are in the Pentecostal denominations? We might need an injection of getting up and out of our seat every now and then and praising God for what He has done. If there is one thing that I know for, for certain is that there is at least one thing in this church where we should rejoice and praise God over. Number one is salvation in Jesus. And number two is when somebody repents of their sins, comes to Christ Jesus, and is born again. That ought to be enough to make us go Pentecostal. And so today's topic... In light of Acts 10, verse 44 through 48, we'll be looking at a movement of the Holy Spirit on the Gentile believers in the house of Cornelius. We will think upon the role of the Holy Spirit, the character of God through His Holy Spirit. Taken from Acts 10, verse 44 through 40, 48. I hope you have your Bibles with you. Sermon entitled, Sweet Holy Spirit. And I'll ask you if you'll stand with me as we read and consider the Word of the Lord. Stand with me as we read these few verses together, beginning at verse 44 of chapter 10 of the book of Acts. We'll close out this chapter today. The word of the Lord says, And while Peter was saying these things or preaching forgiveness in Christ, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. And believers from amongst the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Father, we pray that as we work through your word, your most precious word, God, you will break our heart of stone. You will break our our stubborn nature. Father, you will speak to us through your word, change us, transform us. And as we read your word and as we digest your word in conjunction with your Holy Spirit, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our heart and mind today, illumine, illumine to our heart and mind the treasures of Scripture and the treasure of Christ. And may he be lifted up 
In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, the last time we were in the book of Acts in chapter 10, we, we are in the house of a Gentile Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. He had under his command some four to 600 different soldiers under his command. He's a Gentile believer. His worship had been seeming, seemingly acceptable to the Lord. But this is the new covenant through Jesus. And even in this new covenant through Jesus, Cornelius' worship to God Almighty would be incomplete, meaning that Jesus is the cornerstone of salvation. The Lord had shown Peter that what he had made, it, made is not to be called common or unclean. And the implications of this truth is that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in His sight. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for every people group who ever existed on earth. And what God had made, do not call common or unclean. All implying all people groups, Jew and Gentile alike. And now that Peter is standing in the threshold of Cornelius' house, looking in upon the many people groups that are, that are visualized there, Peter stands at the threshold of Cornelius' house looking at these people and he begins to preach in verse 34. He says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Meaning the God that I serve has never been one to show partiality. He has never been one to show discrimination towards anyone in terms of salvation. Whoever does right in the sight of the Lord is acceptable to him. And this day that we live in this side of the cross, the one who is acceptable, the one who has righteousness accounted unto their account is the righteousness of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. This is the message from the Lord since the very beginning of time as we know it. Whoever does right in the sight of the Lord is acceptable to him. And now it is the righteousness of Jesus that is applied to those who are broken of their sin, who repent of their sin, who trust in Christ as Lord and Savior and are forgiven of those sins. And Peter preaches the gospel of Jesus as Messiah, Savior. The challenge from last week is if we looked at Jesus as our example, the Bible tells us that Jesus did good wherever he went. Wherever Jesus went in his context, he went out of his way, he went out of his comfort zone to lift up and to out, lift out the good news and the good news message of salvation in Jesus alone. And that is our challenge to wherever we go, whatever we do, look to do good, go out of our comfort zone and to preach the good news and to talk of Jesus whenever we do those good works. And so the message of the gospel is that salvation is through Christ alone. Amen. It is through faith alone. Amen. It is through grace alone. Amen. It is through the word of God alone. Amen. And it is to the glory of God alone. Amen. It is not in and of ourselves to be saved. We, once we understand that we have no lot, who will be saved? And we have no merit in and of ourselves. We do not deserve anything in terms of salvation. Once we understand this, we will stop trying to atone for our sins by using our actions and deeds. 
There isn't a check that you can write that will be big enough to atone for your sins outside of Christ Jesus our Lord. There's not a, enough amount of work in this community that you can do that would ever atone for your sins. You have heard it said before that you cannot step to God in your own power and nothing that you will do will grant you salvation. And if you could step to God in your own power for salvation, does that diminish the power and sovereignty of God if you could do that? Would God still be God if you could do that? So let's look and see what happens when Peter preaches the word and, let, and lets God, let God's word fall where it may. Let, let the, he lets the word of God fall where it may. And that's what we need today. We need people who will stand, proclaim, teach God's word, and let that word fall where it might fall. And if it offends, then let it be God's word that offends. So Peter preaches, and the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. As Peter began to preach, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard this word. We had often purported that God will not act contrary to his word. Have you ever heard someone say that? Or maybe you yourself had said, God will not act outside or contrary to his word. Have you ever heard some, somebody say that? It implies that God will not act against his nature. It is not as if God will go outside of this word because he is constrained to this word. This word contains the very character of who God is. And so maybe a better, a better approach or a better statement is that God will not act against his very nature, which the word of God encapsulates and lifts up to us. You want to know the character and nature of God? Read God's word. And for those who hear the word of God are hearing about the very nature and character of God. And there's an adjective that we use that describes the character and nature of God. In terms of salvation, it is the adjective that he is salvific. God is a salvific God, which simply means that he is a God that seeks to save. While Peter was saying these things, preaching forgiveness in Jesus... The Bible says the Holy Spirit, in verse 44, fell on those who heard the word. And the Lord often works in this manner. He immediately and he concisely works. A lot of times the Lord will, the word of God has gone forward. A person hears God's word. The Holy Spirit moves. And see, the present participle in this word captures the notion that while Peter was still going on preaching, you ever heard somebody say, well, they're just going on and on about it. So as Peter was going on about salvation in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, he was still speaking. And the Holy Spirit reclined or rested upon the Gentile believers. We would say at this point that the Holy Spirit indwelt the Gentile believers there. As they heard the word and as they repented of their sins, simultaneous action, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Now, the same language of the Holy Spirit falling is used. Here's a few references for that. Acts chapter 8, verse 16, Acts 10, and verse 44, and Acts 11, and verse 15. Use the same language that the Holy Spirit rested, reclined, or fell upon. And while Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit reclined on them, indwelt them. He was preaching on forgiveness 
through the name of Jesus. We talked about this last week. The name of Jesus is not just something that you can sprinkle on anything that you do. The name of Jesus is loaded with meaning. It is loaded with His, his miraculous birth, the incarnation. It is loaded with His perfect and sinless life. It is loaded with His death on the cross. It is loaded with His resurrection. We don't just sprinkle the name of Jesus on something and just act like it's some, some spell that we cast. It is loaded with meaning. And every time we talk about Jesus, we better be thinking about His death and His resurrection. Because if not, I believe we borderline blasphemy. Taking the Lord's name in vain. And so now, he's preaching to the Gentiles forgiveness through Jesus' name. And it may be implied that Gentile people in Cornelius' house, they were forgiven of their sins by Jesus. And as a result, the Holy Spirit came upon them and, and filled them. And this event is referred to, you've heard me mention it before, the Gentile Pentecost. The falling of the Holy Spirit upon them is very reminiscent of what we find in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room. Thus showing that God was opening the avenue of salvation to the whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now I want you to notice the chain of events that happens because that is, it is very important to this narrative. Notice the chain of events. They heard the word preached and they believed. They received the Holy Spirit. You know, there are some denominations who would attach the water baptism to salvation. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. In the closing of our text today. But it is clear so far. First comes the preaching of God's word. Then there is faith in Jesus. There's salvation in Jesus as they believe. And the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And then they are moved to an open profession through baptism. But look at verse 45. The Bible says there were believers there amongst the circumcised who had come with Peter. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And I wonder in our culture, we talk about the, the all of God, the A-W-E, the all of God. God is awesome. And I wonder in our culture if something is lost with the work of salvation. And it isn't as if people are coming to, Lord, to the Lord in this church and in this community hand over fist. So I know that we're not desensitized to, to people coming to faith in Jesus. When a person is saved by Jesus as they repent of their sins and they trust in, their, in, in Christ, the whole church ought to be overjoyed and brought to a place of humility and to a place of worship. When a person is growing in their faith, there ought to be worship to Jesus. When a person has this, this illumination by the Holy Spirit and they are clearly growing in their faith and they're walking with the Lord, the whole church should be brought to a place of humility and worship to God Almighty for what He is doing. I want you to look at the response of Peter and those who traveled with him. The verse says that they were amazed. It is almost as if they were amazed that the, that the Gentiles should be admitted to the same favor as themselves in Acts 2. The falling of the Holy Spirit and included in salvation. The Holy Spirit falls on them in a dramatic way and towards the uncircumcised Gentiles at that. Now I want you to remember when 
Peter made the remark. He said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And we read that in verse 34. Well, now that statement issued by Peter has been demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt. There is no more doubting. Yes, God shows no partiality. But I have picked up something in the tone that Luke uses. It implies that Peter was surprised when he wrote, even on the Gentiles. You notice that last portion in verse 45. It is poured out even on the Gentiles. As if to say, number one, that God is offering salvation even on the, to the Gentiles. Or to say, man, even from where they're from, God is offering salvation to them. Through the tone that, that Luke uses. It's not as if Peter was surprised. As if they were somewhat unworthy of the gift of salvation. It would be like someone saying God is gracious, even if they are from farm life or Janesville or Beargrass. They are, God is gracious to them, even if they are from Jacksonville or the wrong side of the tracks. They're Gentiles. They, we were, they were considered unclean for so long that God says, no, they're not unclean and they're not common. God is gracious. See, what set this particular event in motion in the house of Cornelius was the preached word of God. Regardless of how silly you might think that I look, or any man who stands behind a pulpit, a man speaking to you 30, 40 minutes, sometimes long-winded, sometimes short-winded, whoever it might be, jostling back and forth, stuttering over their words, saying buttload instead of boatload, Stumbling over their words, sputtering and stuttering. This is still the way that the Lord has sovereignly chose to save his people. And we might get it wrong. Your teacher in your Sunday school class might get it wrong. But God uses it. God uses it to illumine Jesus Christ. And Peter preaches from the scriptures concerning Messiah. I want you to know there are a few things that God's Word, some characteristics of God's Word that I want to highlight before we move on. God's Word is God-breathed. It is God-breathed. It means, some of your translations might be, it is inspired. God breathed it out, and as He breathed this out, people wrote what God had said. He's in, he inspired, He breathed it out, and they wrote the Bible tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. All of these things and all of these elements, it should be what a child of God covets in their life. To have teaching, to be reproved and corrected when we need, need to be, and to be trained in righteousness. It is inspired, breathed out by God, the very voice of God transmitted to us via the canon and rule of Scripture. Secondly, it is absolute truth. God's word is absolutely true. In an age that doubts absolute truth and the theory of what is true, that which corresponds to reality is absolutely true in God's word. Psalms 119 and verse 160 says, The sum of thy word is truth. John 8, 32 says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And if you know the truth and the truth is, shall set you free. It is absolutely true. Then the word produces faith. The word of God produces faith. We find in Romans 10 verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God or by the word of Christ. Romans 10 
verse 17. And then the Word of God judges. You might say, well, how does God's Word judge, preacher? Well, Hebrews 4 and verse 12 helps us to understand how God's Word judges. The Bible says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both the joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Peter preached Jesus. From God's Word. The people embraced the Word. They understood it as absolutely true. Produced faith. Friends, we need the preaching of God's Word. We need teaching and discipleship from God's Word. Now I want to issue a warning before I say what I'm about to say. I want you to know that this comes out of a place of concern. And what I'm about to say in this next Statement, I'm probably preaching to the majority of the folks in here, preaching to the choir, as they would say. But I think it needs to be said. So maybe you can pass this on to people in your Sunday school class. Because I do not understand why people in this church will attend Sunday school and leave to go home and not attend morning worship. And there might be many reasons for that. I don't know. I don't want to be legalistic on that and grab and say, hey, no, you're coming in here today. The Word of God, the preached Word of God, it is the meat and potatoes of our time together. It is the rightly preached and rightly divided Word of God as it is explained, as you receive exhortation, and as you receive application of that Word. It is the meat and potatoes of our time of worship here today. Is God's Word is it important enough for you to come and listen to that word? Maybe you don't like the preaching. Hey, maybe you don't like the preacher. Hey, maybe you don't like the singing. I don't know. But the divided word of God is important enough for us to come in and listen. You can get a real good idea of the value that a person places on the word of God based on their lack of even bringing a Bible to church. Some use their smartphone, and that's fine. I'm fine with that. You see, go to that next slide, Tim. Well, anyway, you get the idea. We put the verses and the notes here on this screen because I know that some people do not follow along in their copy of God's Word. And I want you to get a dose of God's word somewhere. And I'm not being legalistic. You might have a smartphone, a tablet, whatever. Is God's word important enough? Has God, the creator of the universe, has God spoke through his word? Which is the rule of which we live. We don't call this the canon of scripture for nothing, which means that it is a rule, a measuring stick. The word of God was preached. People heard the word. They believed. They repented. They were saved. And the Holy Spirit rested upon them. And just as the Holy Spirit moves through the preached word of the Lord, the Holy Spirit moves. Want to publicly proclaim their faith. It will move you to publicly proclaim your faith, whether it's through baptism, 
or whether it is standing in your seat and saying, Jesus save me, thank God for salvation. Look at verse 46. And while they were hearing them, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God, and Peter declared, Peter declared in verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? May they receive the Holy Spirit just as we have. And we must understand the time frame into which the Lord was using the church. The age that we are reading of in chapter 10, really through the book of Acts, is the apostolic age. During this time of history, the Lord was using the apostles, those who witnessed Jesus' resurrection and were sent out by the Lord himself. He was, he was using them to solidify the gospel of Jesus towards the uttermost parts of the world. And through the apostles, people witnessed signs and wonders, speaking in known languages or speaking in tongues. And all of this was done to give credence and to authenticate what? The preached word of God on the resurrected Jesus. The miracles accompanied the preached word of God concerning the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and that he is coming again. And once the apostles died, guess what? The apostolic age ended. There are no apostles alive today. You don't have to worry about that. And what I mean, you might have to be driving by a church, you might see something that says, Apostle so-and-so. Well, unless, unless John on the Isle of Patmos come back to life, or Peter, or any of the apostles, there none of them exist today. The apostles are dead and gone. There are no apostles. Because we do not need apostles. We do not need miracles to authenticate the Word of God. As I mentioned, this is the rule. This is the complete Word of God. We don't need miracles and signs and wonders to authenticate what God has said. But this group of Gentiles that were filled with the Holy Spirit upon their conversion, they spoke in tongues or unknown languages. And here is where we lose sight of this verse. We lose sight in this verse because it says in that last portion of that first exclamation there that they were extolling God. And we lose sight of this. What were they doing? Extolling God. And I love this phrase because it means that they were showing how God was great. And we often say this sometimes. I hear, I hear people say this. We want to make much of Jesus. I use that phrase. People use it all the time. To make much of Jesus. So if they were extolling God, they were making much of Him. They were magnifying Him. It's exactly what they were doing. They were glorifying or they were magnifying God. That's exactly what they were doing. Notice after they heard the word concerning Jesus, they believed, they trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit reclined upon them. Then, and only then, Peter moves them to be obedient to the Lord Jesus' command that we find in the Great Commission passages to be baptized in the name of the Lord to be baptized, as he says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Do we have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Do you see any reason why these people cannot be baptized? Notice baptism is only after they receive the Holy Spirit. And one does not receive the Holy Spirit unless they have been saved or born again. Thus, putting baptism as following the command of Jesus as an ordinance. 
for public profession and not one of regenerative properties. What does that mean? Baptism has nothing to do with being born again. It is a public proclamation of being born again. The evidence is clear that Gentiles were converted and now they are entitled to be baptized. Literally, literally, this translation is, can anyone cut off the water, cut off the water from the being baptized as to these? Weird word order. Can anyone cut off the water? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And remained with them for some days. Now it is interesting that there is no indication that Peter baptized these believers. And if water baptism was part and parcel to the gospel proclamation, you would think that Peter would be first in line to baptize these believers. And it is implicit evidence that he understood the concept that Jesus left of making disciples. Meaning there is no hierarchy when it comes to who can baptize a candidate for baptism. You know what the prerequisite for somebody stirring the baptismal waters and baptizing a candidate? Do you know what the prerequisite is? They must be born again. But somehow we think that unless the pastors dunk them that they haven't been truly baptized. I believe this is a good practice to hold, to have the person who led the candidate to the Lord baptize them and who is discipling to baptize them. The pastors do not always need to be the one to do the, bab the baptism. The water isn't going to be holy just because the pastors get in it. And it seems that Peter understood this fact. At least it is implied. He understood what Jesus was trying to teach them, to make disciples in everything you do, even in the act of of baptism and immersing a candidate. And so now the Holy Spirit rested upon the now redeemed and they went to the water to publicly profess their faith. You see, we have the privilege of filling the baptistry. Hopefully in a few weeks we'll have the privilege of filling that baptistry with water. We have a heating element in that baptistry that raises the water to a comfortable temperature so we don't have to do it icy cold. Been there, done that. We have the comfort of baptizing a candidate in a sanctuary with like-minded believers without the fear of persecution. But for today, it is quite easy to publicly profess faith in Jesus. It's easy for us to profess. Even right now, somebody could stand up and profess Christ right from their seat and say, I profess Jesus as my Lord. I will live for him the rest of my life. And you can profess Jesus from right where you're at, and you don't have to worry about somebody coming sticking a gun in your back and saying, you're going to jail, buddy. So we can proclaim and publicly profess faith in Jesus freely and openly. But back then, and even today, it was not so easy. In hostile environments to the gospel, stirring the waters of baptism can even be a death sentence. In Muslim countries where Muslims are trusting Christ at an alarming rate, and they are, trusting in Jesus at an alarming rate. You know what we think of when we think of Muslims today? We think of, because we've been programmed, we think of Muslims invading our country and taking away our freedoms. And we forget the fact that Jesus is saving Muslims at an alarming rate and they're being baptized. But we think of refugees coming in like a Trojan horse and overtaking the United States when there are Muslims all over the world who are trusting in Jesus. And for them, baptism can be problematic. For a Muslim to profess Jesus 
is God and that Islam is a cult would be a death sentence to them and even face being disowned by their own family. For a Muslim to be baptized is therefore perceived as a clear act of converting out of Islam and into Christianity socially, spiritually, and culturally. For us, it's not a problem. We'll fill the baptistry, people will come, we'll have dinner afterwards, we'll celebrate before Muslim friends in hostile countries. It's a death sentence. Maybe to Gentiles opposing the state. Hey, you say that you're a believer? Put your money where your mouth is. Let's, let's go to the baptistry. Prove it. In the words of Peter, what hinders them from being baptized? And I'm asking, why do we follow through with the ordinance of baptism? The answer isn't, the answer isn't because we're Baptists. Number one, Jesus commanded it. Therefore, go make disciples, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them. It is commanded. Secondly, it is in the teaching in Acts and the epistles. In the New Testament, there are 106 occurrences of baptism. And 44 of them are in Acts and the epistles. In the book of Acts, we find nine instances of people being baptized. From Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 38, all the way down to the Ephesian disciples in chapter 19, 3 through 5. There are nine occasions in the book of Acts that highlights baptism. Number five is where we are, Cornelius and his large group. They simply obeyed and followed the Lord. Yes, this message is about the work of the Holy Spirit seen moving in the house of Cornelius and the power of the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon once preached, he said, Mental power may fill a chapel, but spiritual power fills the church. Mental power may gather a congregation, but spiritual power will save souls. We want spiritual power through the Holy Spirit. We know that some ministers before whom we shrink into nothing as to talent, but whom have no spiritual power, and when they speak, they have not the Holy Spirit with them. But we know others who are simple-hearted, worthy men, who speak their country dialect and who stand up to preach in their humble sanctuary and the Spirit of God clothes every word with power, hearts are broken, souls are saved, and sinners are born again. And so there is power in the Holy Spirit. We see the word preached. We see hearts broken. We see people saved. We see the Holy Spirit fall upon people and begins to grow in his church. The Holy Spirit of God convicts sin, points people to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. The Holy Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit illumines the word of God to the heart and to the mind. The Holy Spirit moves these people to repent and move the people to obey. And he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed in that. And where do you fall in line with these spoken words today through the word? 